Hi, I'm Dan. I'm an alcoholic. I'm reading from uh, Dr. Silkworth's second letter in the doctor's opinion in the uh, forward to the big book. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented, unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others take with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of the spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. Well, that's a really powerful paragraph, and the fact that it was written uh, back in the 30s uh, makes it even more remarkable today because it describes absolutely beautifully what's going on in the brain of a person who suffers from alcohol or any other substance addiction because the mechanism ends up being the same. And the several things that are pointed out here is that the sensation is pleasurable. We like it. And I like the way he says it here, um, that the sensation is elusive. And men and women drink essentially because they like the effect. And the sense of ease and comfort comes at once by taking a drink. And I think that's really important, that the, uh, the, the effect that alcohol and other drag drugs have on the brain is to actually change the way we feel. And it does that by releasing uh, various neurotransmitters in the brain, particularly those endorphins or the natural opioids that are in the brain. And that's what makes us feel uh, really, really good. There's a second piece of this, however, and that what Dr. Silkworth is getting at in, in this paragraph is that one, the drinking can be injurious to the person who is an alcoholic. The second is that other people can drink with impunity. They don't have any danger whatsoever. So it isn't just the release of the endorphins that causes us to continue to drink. It's something else. And what we've learned over the years is that the brain of the person who is addicted to alcohol or other substances or even some behaviors like gambling, the thing that happens is the motivation part of the brain that releases dopamine 
tells the individual that this is really a good thing. You're going to feel good if you do this. And therefore, that dopamine reaction motivates us to seek the drug or to seek the alcohol. And that's what Dr. Silkworth calls the craving, that we begin to get that feeling, I got to have this, I've got to have this, I got to have this. And that's the dopamine effect. And all substances and all addictions are, are preceded by this uh, level of, of uh, dopamine surge. So the brain gets used to the dopamine surge and knows when we have that dopamine surge, we're going to end up having the good feeling that comes from, from the endorphin. So we can, we can see that the drugs have an effect. Everybody has that dopamine response. It's normal. So there's not any disease in the dopamine response, and there's absolutely no disease in having the endorphin response. Where the disease comes in is getting stuck or habituated to it. In other words, we get so high from the dopamine that we want it more and more and more. And we can see that in, in when we attend AA meetings, we hear people talking about, I couldn't live with it and I couldn't live without it. And that's because that dopamine re reaction has taken over. The last thing I want to comment on this paragraph is uh, Silkworth's mentioning this psychic change that occurs. And I think this is one of the most intriguing parts of the biology of addiction. And that is that there is actually a part in the brain, we call it the prefrontal cortex, actually inhibits that dopamine release, that release of I got to have it, I got to have it. But that prefrontal cortex, first of all, doesn't really develop until our late teens and early 20s. And therefore, it's not at all uncommon to see young people who really don't get this psychic change because their brain isn't ready for it. And that psychic change occurs by, uh, and we can tell in, in MRIs and, and brain imaging, that that part of the brain lights up when we be enter recovery. Before we're in recovery, that amygdala or that reptile brain, that, uh, that brain that says, I got to have it, I got to have it, is lighting up. But whenever we develop recovery or enter into recovery or have this psychic change, that frontal lobe begins to light up and sends signals down to the need center or desire center of the brain and pushes it down, dampens it. It doesn't happen overnight. That happens for most people uh, over a, a long period of time. It may take, it may, it definitely takes six months, uh, probably five years for most of us until what they talk about here, what Silkworth says really happens, is that an individual who seemed doomed with so many problems suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. By the grace of God or uh, whatever miracle occurs, that happens to some people, but most people that desire for alcohol uh, diminishes over time as that prefrontal cortex gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Uh, rusty alcoholic, so I looked up some stats and I've got just three here I want to go through real quickly. It says the five-year average rate of excessive alcoholic deaths per capita in Oklahoma increased by as much as 40% from 2015 to 
to 2019. Now, that was even before the pandemic. Another one that caught my eye was 68.6% of people who die from excessive alcohol use in Oklahoma are male. And the last one is that 85% of deaths in Oklahoma from excessive alcohol use are adult ages 35 years and older. To me, that just really gives us a bigger picture of what we're talking about today. And the question I have for you, Dan, is in my own mind over the years and with the advent of MRIs and, and, and other brain scans, all of a sudden we're seeing visually, we can see how the brain is lit up when it's alcohol or cocaine or you name it. And the phenomenal thing for me is this is the same thing that AA's been saying in the doctor's opinion. Yeah, the really, 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 really good point. It just shows that uh, Bill Wilson and Dr. Silkworth and the early founders of AA were really good observers. They could see what was going on in the behavior of the people in themselves, Bill mm -hmm. and Dr. Bob, for example, and Silkworth seeing hundreds and maybe thousands of alcoholics and drug addicts at his hospital, a town's hospital in, in New York City, he made really good observations of what was happening. What, we, what they didn't know is they didn't know what were the areas of the brain or the neurotransmitters or the brain pathways that led to that behavior. So they observed the behavior, and Silkworth called the behavior, he named it craving, mm -hmm. and we've kept that word, and the psychiatrists and psychologists have used that word craving and have added it to the criteria for making the diagnosis of alcoholism or any drug addiction, that one of the characteristics is the presence of craving, that feeling I've got to have more, I can't live without it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an observation and a clinical symptom. We now know that that craving occurs in a particular part of the brain because we see it light up on the MRI. Mm -hmm. doesn't change the observation right. at all. It just gives us now mm -hmm. a better idea of what's going on. Now, over the years, we've studied uh, neurotransmitters. We've studied the brain. What was it, 1990 to 2000 was the decade of the brain. And a lot of this information came about then and over the past 20 years since. And it, as, as the information emerges, we learn more, mm -hmm. and our old ideas begin to change. Mm -hmm. But what's so wonderful is those people who have really could observe human behavior, human behavior hasn't changed. We're right. just figuring out, okay, what's the, what, what's mm -hmm. the basis of that? Mm -hmm. So a comment about the numbers that you gave, Rusty, uh, they're, they're very interesting to me. First of all, alcohol is very, when we drink too much, it really does damage our body. It damages our nerves. We get peripheral neuropathy, our feet and hands are numb. We get liver disease and we, we end up not being able to metabolize poisons in our body and that causes problems. We develop uh, dementia, uh, which is called Korsakoff psychosis, is a form of dementia. So the alcohol is toxic to nerves. Other drugs are toxic to different parts of the body. Methamphetamine just wears out the epinephrine system, the adrenergic system, and makes us wear up very fast. Interestingly enough, opioids don't truly wear us out. If they don't stop our breathing, we can take opioids for a long period of time without much physical damage. We have a lot of psychological and, and social damage. 
But those numbers in Oklahoma are distressing. And I think, and there's some new theories about this, that actually we have a culture and a society that is toxic. And one of the ways we handle our toxic stress or our um, traumatic stress mm -hmm. uh, is through the use of alcohol and other drugs. Alcohol is a perfectly acceptable drug for men. It's considered, and, and for women now too. I mean, it, right. it started out being for men more so than women. I think those numbers will change as, as our society changes. The death rate at the time being a middle-aged disease just shows that it takes a little while for the alcohol effect to damage the body, whereas methamphetamine will damage the body very, very yeah. rapidly. Cocaine will damage the body very rapidly. So the other thing that I think is intriguing is most of the overdose deaths or deaths from substances in Oklahoma are not from alcohol anymore. They are from the synthetic opioids, right. mainly fentanyl. And the death rate has steadily increased mm -hmm. uh, through the top there. And that's occurring in younger populations. It's the 20s and 30-year-olds that are dying from those uh, drugs. You had indicated that the various substances affect different parts of the body in wearing us out. Correct. In toxicity. Differently, yeah. But is their impact on the brain the same or different between substances? It's an important question. So we're, we're, when we're talking about the brain becoming addicted, that's the same mechanism for every substance. It involves dopamine. It involves release of uh, endorphins. And it is suppressed by the prefrontal cortex. When we talk about the toxic effects, the cause of death, it's, every drug is, has a different mechanism. So alcohol is neurotoxic. Cocaine is, it's not so much neurotoxic as it, as it is vascular toxic. So the addicting process is the same. The toxic effect on the brain is different for the individual drugs. Like nicotine doesn't seem to have a toxic effect on the brain, but it has a very toxic effect on blood vessels. I guess I'm not asking my question clearly. When we talk about the different parts of the brain lighting up as we're in our addiction and then we're in recovery and we're not using the substance anymore, right. is that the same? Pretty much. Between yes. substances. Substances and behaviors, even. Gambling, shopping, eating. Okay. I'm a thief. Is that effect the same? In other words, is it addiction in general? not just to the substance? Yes. It yes. says addiction in general. Yes. It's, it's going to light up this. It's going to activate the motivation center. I'm motivated to do it, to take the action. And it's going to cause this cascade effect of feeling good. And then the prefrontal cortex kicks in and I feel remorse and regret, but not enough to stop the, until I have the psychic change and reverse the process. In professional areas, they talk about it being a brain disease, but Alcoholics Anonymous goes a step further, that it is a spiritual malady. We know that many alcoholics suffer. The spiritual malady, we know that many alcoholics, addicts, have other problems, mental illness, depression, anxiety, the list goes on. 
for me, that's part of the spiritual malady. Do you have any comments on that in as far as how that relates to this is just not a brain disease. It's also the added that Alcoholics Anonymous talks about. And now they're starting even in, in the medical field to see that with co-occurring disorders and, and all that. They're not saying spiritual malady, but what are your thoughts on that? We're, we're now getting into language and, and traditions mm-hmm. more, than, more than facts. So if we think about it, um, Silkworth used the word psychic change here. Right. Bill Wilson uses the word spiritual malady, mm-hmm. and he realizes that when AA members practice a pursuit of a spiritual way of life, that is a virtuous way of life, that is a loving, forgiving, uh, generous, uh, grateful way of life, mm-hmm. that their problems in general get better. They have a positive attitude toward the world and have less of a desire to have the positive effects that we get from the alcohol. So the, the thing that, we're, that science is now coming to realize is that there's not a division between the spiritual here and the mental here, mm-hmm. the mind here, and the body over here. It's all one. Yeah. It is all one. So if any one is affected, all four are going to be affected mm-hmm. in, in one way or another. And medicine has been trapped in this idea that if we reduce the problem to its smallest element and find out what caused it, all those other pieces are going to get better. Mm-hmm. Well, that just isn't entirely right. true. What we've been lucky to find out in AA, if you work in the spiritual dimension, these other things get better. The body gets better. The mind gets better. And even now we see the brain heals mm-hmm. uh, these these lesions that... Uh, are, are present when we're mm-hmm. in active addiction, and they tend to go away. We, we learn that when we meditate, and the studies have been done, we actually increase that prefrontal cortex. Not only increase its activity, but increase its volume. We grow new nerves just by meditating. Mm-hmm. Well, meditation might be considered a spiritual activity over here. So it's our, our human history to divide things. We understand life by dividing it into its pieces. AA in its wisdom realized, or Bill Wilson, or quite frankly, it was the Oxford group, and it actually Mm -hmm. goes all the way back to John Wesley and the Methodist Mm -hmm. movement. All of those people realized, no, no, we're missing it. It's a whole. It is a whole. And and the the modern spiritual leaders, such as Richard Rohr and and, uh, the Dalai Lama and, and, and so on, all talk about the integrated whole. Uh, that that is the oneness. And fortunately, medicine is late to that dinner party, Mm -hmm. uh, but is beginning to understand, too, what whole integration means. Dan, thank you so much for sharing this topic with us today. This has been a production of childrenofchaos.net, and we invite you to share your thoughts with us via email to comments at childrenofchaos.net. Children of Chaos is a forum to discuss topics related to and in concert with addiction and recovery in America, is not affiliated with, endorsed, or financed by any recovery or treatment program, organization, or institution. Any views, thoughts, or opinions expressed by an individual in this venue are solely that of the individual 
and do not reflect the views, policies, or position of any specific recovery-based entity or organization.